This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME12. Well, as we wind down 2013, uh, I have to say that this has been an exceptional year for, for the show. We've increased our audience. We have apps now for the uh, for all these mobile devices. And most importantly, I've had some wonderful, wonderful guests on the show that I've learned a lot from. And I'm, I'm also hoping that you have as well. I've got to interview a lot of my photographic heroes and uh, to revisit with some other ones. And I think that some of the conversations that I've had this year are probably some of the best that I've I've produced since I started the show uh, over 200 episodes ago. And today I get a chance to share with you a conversation with a photographer who has influenced me a a lot, Sam Abel. He's, he's, He's known primarily for his work with National Geographic and while the work that he's produced there is absolutely fan- fantastic and wonderful, uh, it's the work that he's been you know, producing since then that continues to amaze and, and inspire me. Um, in the photographic industry, there are a lot of personalities. You know, there are people who, who are not only great photographers, but when you get them in front of a mic or get them in front of people, they just have a presence about them and 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 they're they're characters which is one of the reasons why so many people are are drawn to them but but like his photographs Sam Abel is a quiet man his 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 photographs are are quiet and and that's reflective of who he is but it doesn't mean that his photographs are any less impactful any less beautiful and any less moving i take a look at Sam's photographs and the depth that lies in them is just remarkable. Uh, we're working in a two-dimensional medium with, with photographs, but he adds a third dimension by building these photographs that literally exist in, in layers that not, are not only juxtaposed against each other, but are in relationship to each other and make for the most beautiful and stunning and thought-provoking photographs that I can imagine. I take a look at a lot of photographs, but when I look at Sam Abel's photographs, I aspire to make photographs as thoughtful and as beautiful and as memorable as the photographs that he's made. So I want to thank Nancy Lehrer for helping helping to put us together this week so that I could uh, have the opportunity to finally sit down with Sam and uh, interview him. This is one of those shows that I'm incredibly excited to share with you. So, enjoy. Well, Sam, thank you so much for uh, inviting me uh, to have the chance to talk to you. Um, I've been a great fan of your work. Uh, hopefully I won't too come off as too much of a fanboy, <laughs> but uh, I've, I've certainly been enjoyed your work, been inspired by your work, and I've learned so much from it. So having the chance to sit down here and talk with you is a real treat for me. Well, it's, it's an honor for me to be on the program and to be with you. I've enjoyed our conversation up till this point very much, and uh, I look forward to continuing now on the air. 
You know, when I saw your presentation the other day, one of the things that I really took away from, from it is that I get to see a lot of photographers talk about their work and their careers. And so much of what you shared uh, about your photography had so much to do with who you are as a person. You touch on you know your relationship with your father and how right. he inspired you to become a photographer. But throughout the entire presentation, it was so much about how much you enjoy sharing the way you see the world with others, whether it's in a presentation or, or with, with your photographs. And I'd like to start with that. Am I really sort of on point in terms of my perception of you uh, when I say that? I think you are. I'm the son of teachers and the grandson of teachers and my only brother is a teacher. So teaching through talks and through book publishing and through photography comes very naturally to me. And I think it's a very core part of how I am in life. And that started from childhood. When we went on vacations, they weren't about catching fish or climbing mountains. They were about learning, learning about America, American history, American culture, and American society. My parents were just great believers in life as the great educator. And photography, to me, is a dynamic and beautiful way to be in life. So when I published my first full retrospective, I titled it The Photographic Life, because the photographic life transcends photography itself. It's about using photography to be in your life, whatever your life is. Is that something that you felt like you learned from your your father? Because I know he taught you about the technical aspects of, of photography, particularly composition and how to build the photograph. But in terms of using the photograph to serve as a as a means to being able to experience life itself, was that was that something that you learned from him, or is that is that something that came later? I would say that I learned it from him, but also my mother. It was always easy for me to explain to people the role that my father had in my life. He taught me photography. It took many more years, decades even, to comprehend the equal effect of my mother. And that was she taught me what to photograph, not how. We also had books in our house that were strongly about photography's relationship to life. There were two of them. One was The Family of Man. And I spent so much time with that book that I broke the binding. And when mm -hmm. I look at it now, I see that uh, by a very young boy, it's been glued back together again. And the glue is the most prominent part of the book now. There was another book called Days to Remember, which was about photojournalism in the late 40s and 50s, the post-war era, the era of American expansion at home and abroad. And... Both those books were core, permanent parts of my young education about what photography was, what it looked like, but also what it expressed, what it expressed about being alive and being in life, not in a studio or a dark room or even a business or even a career. Photography to me was about being in life, out in life. Those photographs were produced all over the world, so was part of the enticement in terms of, you, you grew up in Ohio. Right. So was it just the fact that the worlds that, and the people that were being displayed on, the, on those pages seemed so exotic as compared to where you were growing up? Was that part of the allure, or was there something else that was intrinsically about the photographs themselves that was, that was the draw? Both things. That's, that's a good question. 
Part of it was the uh, stimulation that the photographs gave me. They stimulated my curiosity. But there were also accomplishments. There were accomplishments there. In other words, the photographers had achieved something that was distinctly photographic or about the photograph. And so I would look at those photographs in the family of man and study them as accomplished creations. And I would critically, for a 12-year-old, I would critically question how they had done it. I, I would say that photographs were about questions. They were about the questions I had about the world, but they were also questions about how do you create something as compelling as these photographs were to me. And so I dwelt on them. I, it was the opposite of superficial. It was, there was an intensity there. And that was my education. I also had an education by listening to the docents at the Toledo Museum of Art. Every Saturday I went down there and we small children from Toledo scooted around underneath the paintings and the docents would tell us why they worked. And I would understand that. I could see it as they were saying it. And sometimes I could see it before they said it. So I had, uh, from a young age, a, a visual awareness. And I had questions. And the photographs kept beckoning me. They beckoned me to want to understand them. They beckoned me to want to make them. And they beckoned me to want to go to these places. We had one other thing which I feel I should mention. Because it's not only historic, I think it's futuristic. And that is we had a stereo viewer, which was a contraption that you put up to your eyes. And it had two lenses. And when a card with two photographs was put into place in front of the stereo viewer, the viewer, which was me, would get a dimensional 3D stereoscopic view of faraway cultures. And we had maybe 300 of these cards. And I wore them out too. I mention it because it influenced the kind of photography that I wanted to accomplish. The, the photographs that I saw were dimensional and layered and three-dimensional. And all my life, I think, I've wanted that effect in my flat two-dimensional images. But in the future, the near future, I believe that photography will be 3D and we will somehow technologically be back at the stereo viewer. You know, that's one of the things that I love about your photographs is, is how much depth there is, even though they're two-dimensional images. One of your early images when you were 14 was that photograph at the railway station with your father. And though you're known for a lot of other photographs, for me, that is one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite photographs of yours because it has that depth. And I appreciate it all the more knowing that you photographed it when you were so, so young. I know a lot of that came from your dad teaching you to build a photograph. Tell us about what he was sharing with you because at 14... You're, you're still sort of limited in terms of how much you can sort of understand in terms of all that. So how did he sort of present it to you so that you were able to absorb enough to be able to make that, that photograph? Well, number one, my dad was lit up about photography. He'd been a fossil collector um, in the years just before he discovered photography. And uh, I suppose if he hadn't discovered photography, we'd be talking about fossils right now. <laughs> but he took a night class at the University of Toledo taught by Tom O'Reilly, the 
chief photographer at the Toledo Blade, our newspaper. And when my dad would come home from those classes, he would teach me what he learned. And as I said before, he was a teacher, and he was a very gentle and beloved teacher, not only by his students at high school, but also by me. So he wasn't a different guy when he came home. He was his same gentle, mild, uh, soft-spoken Kentucky guy that he was by day. He was that way by night, and he was that way on our vacations. My mother was much more intense, and I found a kind of a refuge in my dad's gentle ways. And he would just tell me what amounted to nostrums or or, uh, light mantras about photography. Keep the sun to your back, take a low angle, bad weather makes good pictures, compose the picture, Sammy, and wait, wait for something to happen. It was, it was, uh, it was, it, they were gently spoken. They weren't stern. It didn't feel like he was teaching. It felt like a gentle conversation that we were having with each other. And I was absorbing it. And it tied in with the family of man and the book Days to Remember. And it tied in with those stereo viewers. So, and I think it tied in with those paintings at the Toledo Museum of Art. So it was part of a comprehensive, understated, but continuous homeopathic, drip-by-drip, thought-by-thought, picture-by-picture, young education for me in photography. And of course, we had fun. I shouldn't leave that out of the equation. We always went to places, he and I, with our cameras, that excited him. We went to see the circus, but not like other fathers and sons. We went to see the circus train arrive in the morning. And all of the acrobats and performers and all of the wild animals and the roustabouts get off the train and set up the big top. And by comparison, the circus that night wasn't so interesting. What was interesting was being backstage, being there in the morning, being there in the great light, seeing the train and the big top, seeing the acrobats perform, practice. It it felt intimate and it felt a little exclusive and there was there was excitement to our photographic outings. We went to working quarries and prize fights and train stations and places that excited him. We went to parades and sporting events, all with the idea of photographing. But we were also dynamically in life. And I, I like that. And there, I guess there's one other thing to say about our family life, our young family life. And a lot of families have this in common, I think, if they, if they think about it for a moment. Cameras came out in our family life when things were best, when there were birthdays and family reunions, celebrations and parties, special events and vacations. And of course, there were the outings. So my association with photography is that it's something that took place when things were at their very best. And there was the delayed reward of two weeks later getting the film back from Kodak in the mail. And then my dad would make a slideshow and we'd all gather around as a family and watch the magic of a slideshow starring us. Mm -hmm. You learned a sort of contemplative photography from your father and you practiced that earlier in your life. But when it came time for you to earn a living as a photographer, it's it's not really conducive to that sort of approach because you have deadlines, there are all these restrictions that are put upon you. 
in terms of you being able to deliver a product, whether or not it's aesthetically pleasing or, or satisfying. So how did you sort of strike that, that balance that allowed you to be able to deliver what your, your bosses wanted from you, but also that allowed you to retain and adhere to that sort of principle of seeing and photographing that you had learned so early on? Well, as you know, I spent my career at National Geographic for 33 years. And the call there for photographs was the one that you just described. Editorial photographs need to be energetic. They need to have a dynamic quality. They need to hold the viewer on the page and hold the viewer on the next page. And my reputation at the Geographic, especially at the beginning, was guy who took quiet pictures. And quiet was not a compliment. Quiet put me into a into a position of jeopardy in my career. One day, the legendary director of photography, Bob Gilko, called me into his office, and he said, we're sending you up to Ontario. We're going to have a halfway show a month from now. We're going to take a close look at Ontario and a close look at you. And I said to him, did I just get put on notice? And he said, the editors upstairs think your pictures are too quiet. I left his office in a mixture of anger and fear. I guess the fear was predominating. The anger came from being misunderstood. I believed in quiet photographs. I believed that they had staying power and that they weren't superficial, but they were worth dwelling on and that they would hold people. And so what I resolved was not to change, but importantly, to make my quiet pictures less deniable. In short, to make my quiet pictures better, more compelling. And how did you do that, especially with, that, with, with the, the work that you had to do in Ontario? What, what, was, <laughs> what, was, what ended up being different? Because I can imagine some people who would break under that kind of, <laughs> kind of pressure. <laughs> so when you went up there and you had another chance to go out there and make these photographs that they're very true to who you were, but that also seemed to demonstrate to them that your photographs were deserving of attention and, you know, on, and page counts in the magazine. <laughs> what did you end up doing differently that allowed you to survive there? It's hard to believe this now because I felt I was working hard at a, at a maximum level before I went to Ontario. But I would say my short answer is I worked harder. And uh, also, I, I strove to give to the National Geographic the kind of content that they could and would publish. And then I just refined those pictures uh, to the maximum. They are very fine-tuned photographs of National Geographic content. And I passed that crisis point in my career. And, and having come through for them, I felt a degree of freedom there that only grew. It grew stronger and richer and deeper. And for 25 years, I felt I could be myself fully if I kept in mind their need to publish a certain kind of photograph. But in each story, there were one or two or sometimes three photographs that extended the boundaries of what was expected and normal in a high-quality National Geographic story. In other words, they let me put my signature into the magazine on a few photographs. And that was very encouraging. And I think, all in all, it wasn't bad for the geographic. You, you, you use the word na a National Geographic photograph. 
I know it's a pretty painting with a pretty broad stroke because the images are fairly diverse, but what, what makes a National Geographic photograph, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I was once asked that. What goes into making a, a good National Geographic photograph? And I said, in one word, and, and the interviewer said, yes, in one word. And I said, everything. Subject matter, that is content, structured compellingly into a composition with great light and a an important moment shown. So the the crafting of a documentary image for National Geographic was a high calling and often a difficult one because the photographers that work there were expected to delve beneath the surface of a subject and to create for the reader an intimacy and even an intensity about that subject. The, the chief ingredient that went into great National Geographic photography was time. And for 20 years, I never heard the word budget for money or for time. And that sounds very dreamy, I'm sure, to your listeners. But I would say that with those freedoms came an expectation that was extreme. If you, if you have the equipment that you need and the time that you need and the budget that you need, if you have independence and freedom in the field and no shot list and no overlord, no oversight, you are expected to come back with photographs that no one's ever seen before. And a picture editor told me that. It was Ontario. Sam, that was good work. Now go back up to Ontario and produce two pictures we've never seen before. That was a compliment and an admonition. And you said the other day uh, over dinner that... Um that broke a lot of photographers. That that right. that the thing, the one thing that seems like an ideal, you know, unlimited time. Uh, you can shoot whatever you want. You have complete freedom and autonomy to create out there. That some very talented photographers could not handle that. No one failed as a photographer at National Geographic because they weren't good. They were all good, very good. But working alone in the field was a test that not every photographer could pass. And by that I mean there was no art direction. There was an expectation that you would produce the story and create the photographs on your own. And there was also this. We worked blind. And in my estimation, there's no one who works blind. Writers see their work. Painters see there's music, musicians hear their work but we photographers working around the world for the geographic for weeks and months and many months at a time never saw our work when we were working in film and i worked at the end of the film era so for 30 years when i was producing work intensely and intensely wanted to know how i was doing there was no feedback they tried but the delay of a week or two before someone back in Washington looked at your work wasn't helpful. You were past that point. Photographers now working in digital can't imagine not seeing their work. It, is that, it was that blindness, the unknowing and the unknown, where you didn't know how you'd done or if you'd done it at all or even if your cameras were working. And on faith, you went forward the next day. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, you just went forward.
So about a year ago this time, you were probably thinking, this is the year that I'm finally going to build a website, or I'm going to improve the website that I already have. And if you're like many people, you probably didn't get to it. Life just got the better of you. Well, why not change that for 2014 and create a website today? And it's so easy to do with the help of Squarespace because they have this, this, this platform that I've been using for the, for the past year. And not only is it easy to build a website, but it's more importantly, easy to maintain, to add images, to add catalogs, to add galleries to your work, add blogs, and to make changes on the fly and not have to spend endless hours going through a manual or searching through the internet to try and figure out how to make the simplest of changes. Because Squarespace is constantly improving the platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. The beautiful designs that you start with are great, but the, the, the wonderful thing about them is that you can customize them to make them look unique to you and your work. And it's and it's e- and it's so easy. I'll, I'll tell you over and over again, it's easy. And until you have the chance to sit down and do it, you'll realize how simple it is to actually put it together. So if you've been hesitating for the past year to try it out, well, today's the perfect day to be able to do that. To start a trial, no credit card is needed. Just start building your website today. And when you and when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME12 and get 10% off to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. And the fact is you weren't working with a shot list or a really prescribed notion. Um, it's, it seems when you look at the work afterwards, it's amazing that uh, any photographer is able to put together uh, a body of work that seems to concisely express an experience, a location. Uh, because, you, you know, you had, you had that work you had to do on Tolstoy right. in, in, in Russia. And that was pretty open. Right, you know, but as you had mentioned, you know, Tolstoy had been dead for a hundred years. Right, the the, the the face of Russia had had changed dramatically since then. That's right. So there wasn't anything really sort of immediately tied to the life that Tolstoy had. There were remnants of it. Right. But then you, as a photographer, are out there for whatever amount of time, and it's like, where do you start? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, this Russia is a big country. There's right. so much land to cover. There, there, there's so many places you could go and so many images you could make. You know that that it's like the writing writing something that blank page right. is right in front of you, and it can be, be the most intimidating thing in the world. But as a photographer, when you're presented with that similar sort of blank canvas to begin with, what's the first step? The first step is reading as much as you can that Tolstoy wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina. The second step is reading biographies about Tolstoy. And there are some heavy, substantial biographies. So you you do immerse yourself as much as you can before you leave. And you carry that atmosphere of intelligence with you to Russia. And then you face up to the task of starting at the bottom of the mountain uh, and and climbing it step by step. You go to his birthplace. You go to his where he was a soldier. You go to where he failed out of law school. You go to where he was married. You go to his various homes. You go to where he walked. 
he had a place on his estate called the Linden Walk. And you walk where he walked. And you photograph the trees that he knew. You photograph where he nearly died and where he did die. He famously ran away from home as an elderly man and wanted to go to a monastery to end his days. Well, he didn't make it. The train was headed in that direction, but he was taken off of it and put into a conductor's home. And there he died. And this you know. You know this from reading the biography. But what you don't know until you walk into the room is that after he had died on the conductor's or the train master's, station master's bed, a peasant from that town came in with a light bulb and showed on the wallpaper Tolstoy's profile in repose as he laid there on the bed, now dead. And with Tolstoy's profile shown on the wallpaper, this peasant with a pencil drew that outline. Well, that's not in any of the biographies. And so you walk in to the room and you're shown the bed on which Tolstoy died and you look up onto the wallpaper and there is this penciled outline of his profile. That is a major picture for the book, but it's not in any of the biographies. You haven't read about it. No one's told you about it. And so there's discovery. And that's what you always hope for is original discovery. It seems like your your, your images, you mentioned before that you liked um, pictures that sort of asked questions. Right. And I, and I see that in your photographs because your, your photographs, I don't want to use the word mystery, but it seems like that's the most appropriate word that I can, I can think of right now. But, <laughs> but, but there's, there's this element of it not just being a static, a static moment, that there is something before and after that right. instant. That's right. And, is, you know, and, like, and, and that seeing, and that seeing is something that I, I, I have a hard time sort of describing it, but I know it when I see it. Right. So how did you sort of get <laughs> to the point where you, you, you did the same, that you know it when you see it and you're able to capture it? I think I came, that came from mostly from paintings. I'm a student of the work of Edward Hopper, and he poised people in situations and in settings human situations and architectural settings that are perfectly poised human moments. And they aren't moments of happiness, and they aren't moments of despair. They're in-between moments. And what I try to achieve in my photographs is an edge. And I, I would say, if that edge isn't there, I'm not interested in the photograph and feel that I failed. And what is that edge? It's enigma, where the individuals in the picture are within themselves emotionally, neither happy nor sad, not obviously in an emotional state that you can identify and dismiss. They're within themselves. And that is a special psychological space you see it in Edward Hopper's paintings and in the photographs that last for me, that endure of mine, I find that quality is there. So, well, I've given, I've given thought to what gives life to a photograph. And I've even published a book with that title, The Life of a Photograph. What gives life to a photograph to me is the ineffable 
quality that it can't be memorized or can't easily be memorized. So that's what I'm after. I'm after photographs where the questions and the state of emotions persist and can't easily be memorized. That, to me, gives to photographs a lasting quality. One of the things you mentioned today at lunch was about this whole question about, uh, is there life after National Geographic? Because there are countless photographers that dream of being there and imagine themselves doing it for the rest of their lives. But I'm sure that there are some you know, challenges, some transitional things that you may not have expected that you had to contend with when you decided to move away from there and, and do your own thing with you know, the personal projects that you'd be working with and, and with the books. So tell me, there's obviously life after National Geographic, but what is that life shaping up to be? And was it what you were expecting? Or, or if not, how have you been surprised by it? Good question. Is there life after National Geographic? And the short answer is yes. And the proof of it is there was life for me as a photographer before National Geographic. I was an ardent, full-on photographer for the 10 years before I went to Geographic, that is between 17 and 27. And I've been away from the Geographic now for 10 years, and they've been rich years, particularly the last seven. The first three were difficult. I, I missed the momentum and the continuity and the, the driving power of assignments. Also, my wife was sick and my dad was dying and digital was replacing film. That's quite a nexus there of contending and conflicting events in your life. Psychologists tell us not to gather all of the hard points of life into one year or two years or three years. Spread them out if you can. Well, I couldn't spread them out. I left the geographic. Film went away, as did my dad. And so did assignments. So for about three years, I didn't make many photographs, but I was writing about photography and publishing books, so I still felt like I was a photographer. I wasn't. There were no new images. I think the thing that got me back into photography was America. I'd long been interested in photographing it, but now I could photograph it in a truly free way uh, without the veil of an assignment shaping my vision of our country, its culture, and, and our contemporary society. And the other thing that got me back into photography was teaching, teaching workshops. I was excited and energized by the photography I was seeing by young, born-again, true-believing photographers, as I had once been. And they brought me their work and their excitement, their enthusiasm, their commitment to photography brought me back. Tell us a little bit about this Project America. I know you showed some images during your presentation. And I, I, it's fascinating, but if you could share a little bit in terms of what your goals are with, with that, because I think it's, it's quite the challenge from, from, from my perspective in terms of being able to capture modern America in a way that doesn't obscure some of those obvious accoutrements that we're constantly pervaded with all the time and that we don't think are photo-worthy just because we see them all the time. And you're having to try and not only create images that document that, but also do them in a way that's very true to how you see and how you photograph. Uh, it's a compelling project, and it has its origin in an encounter I had as a 
senior in college. I was on my way to National Geographic for an interview uh, to be a summer intern. And I was in New York City, and I went to the Museum of Modern Art. And a man named Peter Bennell uh, struck up a conversation with me in the photo archive there. We sat down in his office, and he held forth for about a half hour on photography, what it was, who the great photographers were. And I just nodded and nodded in, in agreement and in rapt uh, interest. And right at the end, I was able to work a question into the conversation. I said, what would you think about a career at like Life Magazine or National Geographic? And he was not happy with that question. He, he said, so you want to go off in that direction? as though it was some kind of um, hell. Well, take this with you. And he handed me a copy of Walker Evans' book, American Photographs. And I never forgot that encounter or how grateful I was to be challenged by someone against my dream of working for a top magazine. I wanted to prove him wrong. And so someday I want to give him a book called American Photographs, and I want those photographs to be by me, someone who had spent three decades at National Geographic. It wasn't nothing. It was something. It was something substantial, something significant, something worthy of attention in the world of fine photography. That's the backstory. The current story is that America often looked to me like a new country, foreign in ways, after I'd been in Russia or Australia or, uh, you know, the Arctic or Amazonia, I would come back to the United States and it would seem futuristic to me. And I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by the changes that were taking place in my country, in my lifetime. And that's the content of this project that I've been working on for 10 years. Modern American history, how America has changed in my lifetime. So I'm taking up all of those subjects that I never took up at National Geographic, big box stores, virtual living, the ghettoizing of smokers, life on a self-serve island, supersizing. And I'm trying to do them with a mixture of objectivity and affection. I'm also trying to do it in my photographic style. So I don't want the book to be downbeat, and I don't want it to be uh, a polemic about anything. I want it to be about our common culture. The first class I had at the University of Kentucky was an English class. And the professor came in, and the first thing he said was, the main theme of American literature is an attempt to reconcile what we've done to the new world. And I wrote that sentence down, and I didn't understand it. But I, I look around, and I see what we've put on the new world in 200 years. And it's pretty fascinating. And so I'm trying to photograph now, not the exotic, but the familiar. And I'm trying to do it in a fresh way that is recognizable as my style. And uh, it's challenging, it's difficult, it's engaging. I'll just say this, I'm never not on assignment. I'm on assignment when I go through the Homeland Security screening at the airport. I'm on assignment when I'm getting my luggage or rent a car, go to a movie, eat in a restaurant, visit friends, drive, walk, play. I'm always looking, looking at and about America. When you say that you want to produce photographs that reveal the country in a fresh way, are you speaking about in a fresh way to the viewers who are going to look at the photographs or in a fresh way to your own way of 
Sí. They have to be fresh to me, first of all, or I won't be interested. They have to have a compelling quality, and that has to do with pictorial qualities. That is the light, the space, the graphics, the formal qualities of any photograph have to be arranged in such a way that uh, I'm taken up with it. There also has to be content. But I do want, I do want the viewer to have his or her eyes opened to our common culture, to what we've created and how we live. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to uh, recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? As I've pulled away from National Geographic just through the passage of time, uh, I look back and see who influenced the leading trend of photography there. And I think that that photographer now, now that I've pulled away and have seen who was most influential, I would say that it's Alex Webb, a Magnum photographer who only occasionally worked at the Geographic, but whose work reached us uh, from, from outside the Geographic. He did a book called Hot Light, Half-Made Worlds, or Half-Finished Worlds. And that book, more than any other, influenced the leading photographers at National Geographic. Alex was taking on a different light, and there was an intelligence to his compositions and a freshness of even when he photographed. He was out photographing in very difficult light, and he was also embracing color, not trying to subdue it and minimize it and limit his palette. His palette was bold to the point of brashness. And I think, as I look back, that that was a turning point at National Geographic. He has continued his intelligent work, and I closely watch his, his achievements. It's a great suggestion. I love his work as well. Great. So where can people go to find out more about your work and your workshops and everything that you're, that you're doing? <laughs> well, I don't have much of a website. Um, so I teach, you know, in four regular places. I teach in Santa Fe in September and Los Angeles at the Julia Dean workshop in December. I teach at the main photo workshop in July and at the Pacific Northwest School of Art in Puget Sound in August. Well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed having the chance to, to talk to you a lot over the last couple of days. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome. As we continue to grow the show and expand our offerings here at the Candid Frame, your support is invaluable. And you can show that support in a variety of different ways. You can make small donations using PayPal, a link for that you'll find at the candidframe.com website, where donations of $5, $10, $20, or even more are greatly appreciated and go a long way to helping us improve the show. You can also post reviews on the iTunes web store, which help our rankings and create more awareness about the great program that we offer here. The show's editor is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the theothermartintaylor.com, Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.